The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. That extra bit of time taken can seem like Why? What is the tremendous significance in taking a little piece of bread and a little tiny cup of juice and eating and drinking? The early church in its early days were accused of cannibalism because of what Jesus had said about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and the way that the church gathered. They gathered in secret those who are not part of the actual fellowship membership of the church were asked to leave. They practiced a very different form of communion in that sense, that it was only for those who were dedicated, committed members of the church. And they would gather in that behind closed doors and they would partake of the bread and the wine. And they were accused of cannibalism because of it. It's one of the charges brought. Misunderstanding. Why do we do it? Christ commanded us to. That's the simple explanation, but it needs so much more than that. There is reason. There is explanation behind it. Why is it that the early church, these disciples of Christ who had come to know Jesus and been baptized, and the very next thing it says about them is they devoted themselves to the doctrine, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Why were they devoted to it? Why should we be devoted to it? Why make such a song and dance about it? Why is it I'm spending four weeks on one verse, taking four phrases and unpacking them? Because they are so pivotal and so foundational to what a church is. There are so many things that have been added on and heaped onto a church the baggage and the peripheral stuff that we've added on to a church. But when you strip away a church right down to its biblical, bare, basic bones, there's not much to it. It's actually very simple. We can see very easily that the foundational activities of the church are all focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, we can see it here in the book of Acts. Gospel preaching is absolutely foundational, and that is Christ proclaimed. The believer's baptism, which we practice here from time to time, is absolutely foundational, and we see in the believer's baptism Christ identified with. We go down into the water, identifying his death. We're laid under the water, identifying with his burial, and we're raised up out of the water, identifying ourselves with Christ and resurrection and a new life. The apostles' teaching, disciples being taught, is absolutely foundational. That is Christ explained. The disciples' fellowship is Christ shared in relationship with one another and most importantly in relationship with God, the Father and the Son. The disciples' breaking bread together is Christ shared in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the disciples praying together is Christ shared in intercession. Each of us interceding and pleading with God on behalf of the other. The whole of the church focus is all focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which of those things do you think can be done properly and biblically without the work of the Holy Spirit in us? None. That's the reason why I've kind of headed off these messages, persisting in spirit-filled living. Because all of those things, the preaching of the gospel requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the preacher, and in the listener to hear what God would say. The baptism, taking that step of obedience, requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The teaching of the apostles, both preaching and the understanding, requires the Holy Spirit. The fellowship that we have with each other is a work of the Holy Spirit in each other's lives, binding us and tying us together in Christ. And so with the breaking of bread, why is it we want to devote ourselves? What drives us to devote ourselves 
to the breaking of the bread. It's the Spirit of God in us, drawing us together and focusing our minds and our hearts and our thoughts upon Christ. Well, if you notice the text, verse 42, they devoted themselves. Now, my ESV has the phrase, to the breaking of bread. Now, if you look down in verse 46, you're going to see a very similar phrase, and it's provoked to one main question. In verse 46, you see how they day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food and so on. And the question I've been asked a couple of times in the last couple of weeks is, do you see Acts 2.42 as a fellowship meal, like we're going to have a fellowship lunch here in a couple of weeks' time where they all got around, they had one big meal together, and a lot of Christians have taken the view that that verse, 42, is speaking about a fellowship luncheon where we're just eating sandwiches or hot dogs or whatever you want to eat. And that's what it's talking about. And the answer is no, I don't see it that way. You say, why? Well, for one thing, in verse 46, you have the same phrase, slightly altered in the way it's written, and it's put in the context of in their homes, receiving food with glad and generous hearts. So most likely, I think it's very certain, in verse 46, he's speaking about a fellowship meal, getting together. The guys are going to Nan's noodle house, right? It's a great place to finish fellowship. And Nan loves it because it gets a whole bunch of guys coming in to buy noodles and eat, to eat around the table. That's what that idea is, breaking, a bre breaking bread down there in verse 46. But in verse 42, the, the phrase in the Greek is slightly different. It has adds the definite article before the word bread, whereas down in verse 46, it doesn't. You say, you're going to put a lot of theology on this. And the answer is, yes, I am. I believe what it means is when he speaks in Acts 2.42, he is talking about breaking specifically some specific bread. And that's what most commentators and scholars will say. He is talking about the Lord's table. He's talking about the Lord's supper, about communion, what we did here this morning. And I'm so glad the way everything worked out with membership and the Lord's table and this topic all coming together on the same day. You see the Lord's hand in that. But he, we are talking this morning about the Lord's Supper meeting together to break bread. Well, back in Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, we have Jesus' institution. Same writer, Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts. So I thought it'd be good for us to look at how he's talked about both of those things how he's spoken about the Lord's Supper in two places. And in that place there, we have that simple command. And Jesus taking bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and giving it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What does he mean when he says, do this in remembrance of me? Remember what? Well, the answer is there's so much we could look at about what it is to remember Christ. There's so much in the scriptures, the whole of the Bible from Old Testament, the Old Testament cover to the New Testament cover at the end is just filled with Christ. But there is some beautiful thoughts and there's some beautiful setup in the Old Testament that relates so beautifully all the way through to the Lord's Supper that what I want to do is look at three things out of the Old Testament that help us to understand what we are doing when we are remembering the Lord. So if you've got the little green sheet there, it's in your bullet and you can follow along. We are remembering Christ, the promised Savior, number one. Number two, we are to remember Christ, the Passover lamb. Number three, we're to remember Christ, the covenant sacrifice. And then I want to talk at the last part of the message about how remembrance affects us. And it, there is an effect on us as those doing the remembering. So first of all, remembering Christ, the promised Savior. So take your Bibles, flip all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 15 and 17. Breaking bread celebrates fellowship. I said last Sunday morning that you could take the phrase, uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles. Doctrine is one half and to the fellowship is the other half, and everything that falls underneath that phrase fellowship all fits like a subheading, and fellowship is a main heading. Breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, celebrates the fellowship that we have. We were created for fellowship with God. God designed us and put us together to have a relationship and a communion with Him. 
in the garden enclosure as man and woman are there before they fell into sin, the one command given to them is about what? Eating, right? You can eat of any tree of the garden you want to except for one. And God there in the garden is in their presence or they're in God's presence. And as they're celebrating that fellowship, they have one with the other as they're eating the different fruits and enjoying that. They are doing it in the very presence of God. And you can see there right from Genesis chapter one, before even the fall, there's a connection between eating and fellowship. And so it says in verses 15 and 17 of Genesis chapter 1, not 14, Genesis chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. No, Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. Didn't sound right. The Bible says in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the reality is that fellowship is enjoyed in the eating of a meal in God's presence. And just as it's enjoyed that way, so also Fellowship is destroyed when we disobey. And what do they do in disobedience? They eat. They're eating the wrong food. They're breaking God's law. And so fellowship is broken. It's established and celebrated in the eating of a meal. And it's also broken in the eating of a meal. And we know that God in grace promised them that a Savior would come. He drove them out of the garden. You know the whole story. We're not going to go into it. I just want to touch on that point about the eating and fellowship. But God, at the end of that scene in the garden, promised them a Savior. He promised them that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent and that the serpent would bite his heel and that Christ would endure the pain of the cross and the pain of being separated from his Father but fellowship would be restored. And so when we sit down at the Lord's table and gather around with God's people, it's so cool that you're all here today. It would be great if you're here all the time. And I know it can't be. People travel. People have to be away. I'm going to be away next week. But it's so wonderful when we as a family, as a body of Christ, are sitting down together around the table and we are participating in a meal in the presence of God, because he promised where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. So he's here with us, and we are celebrating what Christ has done in the partaking of a meal. In particular, we are celebrating and we are rejoicing in the fellowship that we have with God because God kept his promise. The seed of the woman that was promised, he came he was Christ, he is Christ, and he died to bring us back to God. Moving on. Secondly, we remember Christ, the Passover lamb. So take your Bible and flip forward the book of Exodus and chapter 12. In Exodus 12 and verses 1 to 13. Most of you know the story. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about it. We'll read the text together and make some comments. But there's another beautiful scene here that connects to the Lord's Supper. And you know the background of the story. There had been all the plagues in Egypt. And God has shown himself over and over again to the people of the Egyptians that he is greater and more powerful and stronger than all of their pantheon of gods. And the last one he's going to show himself greater than is the god Pharaoh. He's going to go through and he's going to destroy the firstborn of every family in the land. And for the first time in a while, now the, that plague has been extended over to into the people of the Israels, their territory and their homes. And so God comes, and this is what he says in Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the, of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will be for you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The land is taken, lamb, and examined. The lamb is slaughtered at twilight, just as Christ was slaughtered late in the day, I believe. Lamb's blood is applied in faith to the doorposts and the lintel. The lamb's blood is applied publicly so that anybody walking outside the house would see that great splash of blood on both the doorposts and the lintel of the house. The lamb's blood is applied, and the lamb will provide protection from the wrath of God which will fall that evening, that night. The lamb will also provide redemption from slavery at this night and before the night's even over, they will be lift or woken up, as it were, and driven out of the land and pushed out because God is driving them out. There is redemption. They're being set free from slavery. The lamb is then eaten inside the house. And the lamb, which we know, points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He instituted the supper feast at Passover time. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. The lamb eaten inside the house, it points forward again to what we are doing here. The blood applied on the doorpost, the lintel, and everybody in the house is under the protection, as it were, of that lamb's blood. And when God saw the blood, he would pass over the house. There would no judgment fall. No death would fall to anybody, especially the son, that's who he was targeted, in that house. And they knew protection. And what they did was they sat around and they ate a fellowship meal. Now, the problem with this one is, of course, we know that that lamb's blood couldn't atone for anybody's sin. In fact, every year they're told, you must repeat the sacrifice. You go through the whole thing again. Not that the plague will come again, but as a reminder, as a memorial for what God has done in protecting them from wrath and redeeming them out of the land of slavery. A little later, we'll look at the book of Deuteronomy just very briefly. But one thing is I want you to notice in the book of Deuteronomy, if you've never noticed this before, is the number of times the word remember comes up in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, they're told over and over again, remember the Lord. Remember that you were slaves. Remember the God that delivered you out of the land and so on. They're called to remember. So when we gather around the table and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, we are remembering the Passover lamb that we have who was sacrificed once for all. And we are, as it were, under the protection of the blood of the lamb. When the father sees his blood applied to us, there is no more any wrath for us. In that sense, Christ is our Passover lamb and the wrath of God has passed over us. When we come together and sit around this table and we take that piece of bread and a little cup of juice, and we take them and partake of them, we are reminding ourselves that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Third thing I want you to notice, flip ahead in your Bibles, Exodus 24. 
I'll never forget reading through my Bible one day and discovering this and just this beautiful little scene. One little verse is hidden away. The story of Israel has progressed. They've come out of the land. They've gone to Mount Sinai. And what's happened is God has offered or given the covenant to the people of Israel in Exodus 20. And the people themselves have committed to obey the covenant of the Lord. All the Lord's, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they had no idea of what they were committing themselves to. And God brought them that covenant, and that covenant was going to show them that they couldn't possibly keep it. But they've done it. They've made that commitment. Moses sits down, and he writes all the words of the covenant on a book. He gets up early in the morning. He builds an altar to the Lord. He establishes 12 pillars near this altar to speak of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Moses takes and he orders the young men to sacrifice burnt offerings. And in my Bible, it's called peace offerings. Why don't we read it? Exodus 24, verse 3 to verse 11. And the Bible says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. That's remarkable. That's the only time in the Old Testament I can find that that actually happens, where a whole group of the nation go up on the mountaintop, and in a sense, the veil is pulled back, and they're able to see God. You see... How could that possibly be? Not even Moses could see God. But God in some form allowed himself to be viewed in that moment. And those elders and the, and the priests and Moses and Aaron took the whatever it was. Perhaps it was the meat of the bull offering. And they ate and they drank. And there was a fellowship meal eaten there in the presence of God. What's so cool about the story is the burnt offering and the peace offering, which my ESV has, some other versions will render the word peace offering as the word fellowship offering. That's remarkable, isn't it? Because Christ is our burnt offering. He's the one who has been offered up as the sin offering for all the sin of his people. He is the one who has been slaughtered on the cross. His blood has shed and run down. His blood is what makes us clean. What's the book of 1 Peter tell us? That we are sprinkled with his blood. Meaning what? It means that we are part of that new covenant. And just as Moses took all the blood, I have no idea how much blood is in one bull or one goat. But do you think there's 12 bulls and 12 goats in big basins? He took, it must have been a massive basin or a whole bunch of little ones. And he just took it and he flung it out and it went out in a big sheet of blood. And all the people were dripped or sprinkled or splashed with this blood. And just like the blood they paid on the door lintel and the doorpost, they were under the protection of the blood. Now they're under the protection of the blood of a new co of a covenant. We have the new covenant. They have the old one. And they're under that blood. And as a, as a consequence of this, the leaders of the people of Israel go up onto the mountain and there they see God. And I don't know. I, you say, well, how could they possibly see God? I don't know. But I know they did. 
And I know that there was a fellowship time there with God and man, and there was peace established. And you say, why didn't it just carry on? And we all know the answer, right? Because the blood of a bull and the blood of a goat cannot atone for sin. It cannot bring us lasting peace. In fact, all that that sacrifice can do as they offered it every year, again and again and again, countless thousands of bulls and goats offered, not all of their blood put together can atone for one sin of one of us. It reminded them that it couldn't do it. And the reason why they went up the mountain and ate and drank in God's presence only once is the immense grace of God that allowed them to do that. And you and I, we come in here every time we break bread and remember the Lord and we remember the Lord Jesus Christ, our covenant sacrifice. What did he say? He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood. It's real human blood that's going to wash you clean and atone for your sin. And we come down and we gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. And in God's presence, we celebrate and we remember Christ and what he has done for us. We are sprinkled with his blood. The sacrifice has been done. It's over and finished. I always like to remind myself as I walk in the door. Coming to church, there's no great big brass altar out there. George and the rest of the deacons aren't out there with, with shovels and pots and pans and loading up fire. And there aren't other guys walking up with animals and laying their hand on the head. They're not killing it. There isn't the stench of blood and the stench of burning flesh outside this church door. And we come into this place... Just as surely as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and we sit down and we remember Christ. Like I said at the beginning, the whole of the church activity, everything that's about the church is all focused on Jesus Christ. And our remembrance focuses on him and reminds us of what Christ has done for us. But you know, remembrance doesn't just have an effect on God. It isn't just about Christ. It is all about Christ, but it's also about the fact that we are brothers and sisters around that table. The book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 talks about the fellowship that we have as a body in Christ. We remember Christ as a community. That's why we don't encourage people on their own to break bread and drink a cup, it, it doesn't have the same significance. It's when we're together with brothers and sisters in Christ and our single soul goal and focus is all on Christ. That's when that community happens. When we remember Christ as a community, it emphasizes our identity. Who are we? Are we Greeks and Australians, Canadians? Americans, Cambodian, Vietnamese, South Australian, South African, sorry, Romanians. Are, are we that? No. Praise God we're not that. Praise God that when we come together around the Lord's table, all of those dividing lines that the world has established are pushed away and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. And when we remember the Lord and we partake of the bread that reminds us of his body given for us. And I take, sorry, where I come from in the old brethren church, we used to use an actual loaf of bread, right? A white loaf of bread. And we would break off a piece and I'd pass the rest of it to the next guy and he'd break off a piece and pass it and so on around the room. And it was a beautiful picture because it displayed for everybody to see we are all partaking of one. We're all one in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. It's not in who we are in the world's eyes or who we are in genetic eyes or anything like that. Not only that, 1 Peter 2, again, let's take your Bibles and flip over there. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. These beautiful words, I've referred to them lots, but they're worth reading and remembering again. First Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. All of this has to do 
with the fact that we are in Christ. So actually, let's read a little a couple of verses earlier. Verse 5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. That's Jesus. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're a chosen race because of Christ. Only because of Christ. We're a royal priesthood because of Christ. We're a holy nation. Why? Because God has made us holy through the shedding of Christ's blood and washing us clean. We're a people for his own possession. Why? Because he's filled us with his spirit and he's given Christ to dwell in us. Our identity is emphasized and focused and celebrated when we remember the Lord. This is who we are. We're members of the body of Christ. We partake in Christ and we take the bread and we hand it on. More than that, we are also a community who we are together in Christ. If I go out and fly all the way to the North Pole and I'm standing there all by my lonesome, shivering at the North Pole, I can still say, I'm in Christ. I'm still, Christ is still in me and I am still in him. And even though I'm separated from the rest of the body of Christ, I'm still in Christ. That can't be lost. But we are also a community. We are a body. We are together in Christ. And who we are is emphasized when we are together. He says you are a chosen race. That indicates more than one. A royal priesthood. Well, that's more than one. A holy nation, that's more than one. A people, plural. So we are members of each other. And when we come around the Lord's table and we remember Christ, we are emphasizing to each other, you belong to me and I belong to you and together we belong to Jesus Christ. The Bible uses pictures to describe the church. talks about God's people, one body, one holy temple for God's dwelling, where God's building. All of those things have the idea of compiling and assembling components to make them into one thing. It's like watching a bricklayer lay bricks. No brick by itself is a wall, unless it's a very, very small wall. But you put all those bricks together and lay them all together, put mud in them, you just pack them all together. And when you bind them all together with the mortar and make them into one big building, it's all those individual pieces tied together with mortar, which we could say is the blood of Christ that ties us together. It makes us into a building for God's dwelling. Remembering the Lord has an impact on us because it emphasizes that we are a community of saints. We're not just on our own in this world. And brothers and sisters, i got to just take a moment to emphasize this too. We need each other. Thank you. We need each other. Does it matter if I'm not here every Sunday morning? On one level, no, it doesn't. Because we know that even though you're somewhere else, like I'll be in Canada next week, that we're still members of the same family. But brothers and sisters, as a body in Christ, as a building, we need to be together. We need the encouragement of one another. We need to sit around the Lord's table and together remember our Savior. We need to sit together, bound together by blood, but also together with one another that we might minister to one another. Why is this church here as not just one person ministering and everybody else listening? 
It shouldn't be that way. It cannot be that way. It must be every member ministering to other members. The bricks that are tied together mortar, you take one out, what happens? There's a hole. Duh. Right? There's a hole there. But there's, a, there's missing spots. And what bricks on either side? You put three bricks in a row and take number two out. Number one and number three are missing the ministry of number two. Right? We're a body, and that gathering around the Lord's table emphasizes to us the body. One more thing. Actually, two more things. Remembrance also emphasizes our conduct. How we are to behave when we get together around the Lord's table. What's the requirement made in the book of Corinthians for gathering? And before you eat, let a man examine himself. It's absolutely critical. In fact, I was listening to a series of lectures on uh, worship by a fellow named Ligon Duncan, who is a Presbyterian minister in the United States. And he was talking about the early days and some of the early reformers and how they went through this whole process of examination. And one of the reasons, I think it's a faulty one, but I'll give it to you anyway. One of the reasons why they had the Lord's Supper so far spread apart, like once every month or once every four months, is because they would take a month to preach sermons leading up to communion, to preach sermons on holiness and godliness and examining yourself and repentance, to encourage all the saints as they came to that beautiful moment around the Lord's table of remembering the Lord and sharing in Christ together. There was a period of time where they could examine their lives to see what was going on. What was God showing each of them they needed to put aside or deal with before they came together? Now the immediate arguments raised, yes, but we all sin. You're right, we do. And we're never going to get rid of it all. Not in this life or not. So then what are, we, what are we supposed to do with this examine yourself thing? If we deal with that, then we'll be forever going around confessing sin. My answer is, you know what? God has grace. So what do you mean by that? What I mean is when I go before the Lord in prayer, and I plead with God to show me the sin, to show me the, the habits and attitudes that are causing friction and tension between me and my brothers and sisters to show me the habits and attitudes that are affecting my relationship with him. He does not, in grace, give me all of them. You say, how do you know? Because I know he gives me two or three, and I know myself well enough to know that there are probably many, many, many more that he doesn't show me. And he gives us, he reminds us, you need to deal with this. This sin, you sinned over here and you need to put it right. So when we come together around the Lord's table, there is a call on us from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, sorry, to examine ourselves, to see how we are walking before the Lord, to deal with sin. But the Bible says, examine yourself or let a man examine himself and so let him eat. Meaning what? mean that we don't wait till sinless perfection before we sit around the Lord's table and eat of it together because none of us would ever do it. And one requirement would nullify the other. One command would nullify the other command and we just kind of fall apart. We are called to remember the Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat. So we examine ourselves. We see the sin. We strive, we plead with God to forgive us of the sin and we make a renewed commitment to deal with that sin on an ongoing basis, to put it away. And so we eat, knowing that in grace, God has accepted us because of Christ, not because of our sinless perfection that we've attained to, because we'll never attain to it. But there is the issue of conduct coming together around the Lord's table emphasizes how we are to live as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. So that when we come around the Lord's table, we do not incur judgment because we're eating carelessly. He also talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about discerning the body. So what does he mean by that? I think what it is, is realizing that when the body has a cancer or the body has an infection, it has to be dealt with. And so when we realize and see the affection or the cancer that's growing in us, we deal with it. It's a sin issue. It's not a real cancer. 
We go, you know what? I can't allow that to stay because if I allow that attitude, that sinful action to stay, my ministry, my fellowship with Khan will be hindered and strained. Because the Spirit of God is quenched and hindered in my life. If Khan allows something in his life to remain, then the Spirit of God is hindered and quenched in him. And his ministry of me and our fellowship together is strained and hindered. And the the love that we should be enjoying and sharing with each other as a body in Christ around the Lord's table is hindered. I've been in churches, no joke, where there are warring parties sitting around the Lord's table. They will not speak to each other but they will partake of the Lord's table. In their hands is the the bread. It's just ordinary bread, but it pictures Christ's body. And in that piece of bread, they're saying, I am a brother and sister. I'm a member of the body of Christ. I have Christ in fellowship with my brother, and I eat it, and I will have fellowship with God, but I refuse to have fellowship with my brother and my sister. And we think, does the Spirit of God get hindered by that? Yep. It's true. So remembering the Lord is very much about remembering Christ. But there's also the horizontal aspect. Think of the Christian life as a cross, right? Like that. The vertical aspect has to be right. Think of it as a cross nailed together at perfect right angles. If you tip it over, the whole thing goes over. It's not like that. It goes like this. Meaning what? Meaning when the vertical aspect is right, then the other ones will fall into place. But when this aspect is wrong, then this one is always is all messed up. And listen, you say, well, yeah, but, you know, I'm fine with the Lord. It's just con I can't stand. No, 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 no. If there's a problem this way, there is definitely a problem this way. In fact, if there's a problem in this way, this is the symptom, that's the problem. You say, well, you don't know. There is a brother and sister in my church, and you know, if it just wasn't for that guy, I'd have a great relationship with everybody in the church. <laughs> Newsflash, you're the problem. Just as much as he might be the problem, but for you, you are the biggest problem in that church. The reality is when we come around the Lord's table to remember the Lord, to celebrate what Christ has done, to remember who he is, we are also celebrating who we are by very virtue of the fact of what Christ has done for each of us because he's done it for all of us. And just as surely as I have fellowship with Christ, I have fellowship with my brother and sister. And brothers and sisters, when that this relationship is allowed to be flawed and hindered and stained and scarred and broken, there will not be good fellowship between us and God. You say I'm lose, can lose my salvation because I'm, in, I'm warring with my brother and sister. No, I did not say you can lose your salvation. Don't mistake fellowship for relationship. And what I mean by that, that may sound a bit odd. What I mean by that is... Uh, one of my sons is in the back corner, right? He will always be my son. You may not like the fact at times, but he's always my son. I can't break that, that, that the relationship I cannot break. He is my son. He's got, he looks like me. He talks like me. He acts like me. And people look at him and go, oh, yeah, we know who your dad is, right? They all can connect. And I can never undo that sonship, fathership relationship. And you and the father will never be able to break that relationship. It's an unbreakable bond. But there are times when my son doesn't talk to me because he got a lecture about something. And he's a little bit grumpy with dad because I said something to him. Or maybe I don't talk to him because he did something he didn't want supposed to. And I'm grumpy about it, right? The fellowship is strained. The relationship remains intact. It can't be broken. So brother and sister in Christ, when we come around the Lord's table, remember who Christ is. 
there's so much more. I wish I, I wish that clock didn't have a battery still so I could go on for another half hour. Because there's another whole point I wanted to bring up more than anything else. And the last point is number five, remembering as savoring Christ above all else. And that's the high point I wanted to end on so badly. When we come around Christ, I don't get very emotional. I'm not an emotional person. I don't weep at telephone ads or anything like that. Uh, you know, it just, I'm just not built that way. But one of the times in my week or my month when my emotions get strained a little bit is around the Lord's table. Because for me, when I come around that table and I focus on Christ and everything else, ministry, preaching, family, church is all pushed back a little bit. And I focus on Christ and I see the Lord Jesus Christ and I see him without anything else blocking my view. And I savor him. Those memories become almost like taste. Which is why, by the way, the psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this this feast that we celebrate as we break bread and take a little cup of juice, the taste on your tongue, it shouldn't just be the taste of bread or grape juice. It ought to be the taste of the sweetness of Christ. It ought to be the taste of the reality of His humanity. It ought to be the taste of the reality of His body given for you and I. It ought to be the bittersweet taste of wine that says that He was crushed for my iniquities and the Lord was pleased Get that. The Lord was pleased to bruise him so that I can stand here or sit here. And remembering ultimately is about savoring Christ. It's the absolute joy and delight of our hearts and our souls. You say, why can't I do that throughout my week? You can, you should do it. But there is something even more special when we come together around the Lord's table and we savor Christ together as a church and a body. I'm going to leave it there. There's there's so much more I want to say about this, but just take that with you. Loving Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I just thank you so much for our Savior. Father, the Lamb of God. Father, the fire, the wood, and the knife. But where is the Lamb? God will provide for himself a Lamb. Father, to stop and think about those words. The faith in Abraham that needed a sacrifice in a matter of hours. And the whole cry of humanity that needed a sacrifice once for all. The whole cry of an Old Testament scripture that called and looked and searched for the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And the great answer that God did indeed provide for himself. Father, we could bring billions of goats and bulls and lambs and rams. We could give every gold speck that is on this planet, and it would not be enough. Father, we could dedicate a million years of service, and it wouldn't be enough. But Father, we praise God, we give give thanks, we praise our Savior, we worship Him this morning because He said it's finished. And you said, it's enough. You provided for yourself a lamb. That we might sit here this morning. And Father, this this feast around the table, the fellowship that we have one with the other, brother and sister in Christ, is a crude, shabby foretaste of what will be an infinitely greater reality in days to come. Father, I plead with you that we would stop and think about what we are doing when we come around the Lord's table. I plead with you, O God, for each and every believer in this room. 
that they would realize that they are not just members of the of Christ, of the body of Christ in a big sense, but we are members of each other, the one sitting right beside us, behind us, and in front of us. Father, if there is a broken relationship in this room, I plead with you, O God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would greatly impact the parties involved, that there would be reconciliation, there would be restoration of that relationship, that they might eat of the Lord's table, sharing with each other in Christ, that the Spirit of God might not be hindered from working amongst us. Father, I plead that you would work in every single person in this room, and work in my life, Lord, work in my heart, that the sin and the habits, the weights that are dragging us down, that are hindering the Spirit of God from working in each of us, would be put aside and removed, that we might run with endurance the race that's set before us. But, Father, we might run with arms linked with one another, our eyes focused on Christ, bringing and encouraging and building up each other to keep going in the race. Oh, Father, we need each other so badly. Help us never to forget it. Drive it deep into our bones and our hearts and our minds. Father, that we would, we would be so careful as to how we live, so careful to come around the Lord's table with care and reverence and respect. But, Father, we thank you also for the the equal truth that we can come boldly into your presence. Father, that scene out of the Old Testament is the, whole, the high priest, blood in one hand, censer of coals in another, incense, all of it, all of his robes perfectly arranged and organized, all perfectly washed, bells around the hem of his garments, the names of the people of Israel on his shoulders and his chest, Holiness to the Lord and a plate ascribed onto his forehead and yet with a rope tied around his ankle. And he stepped with fear and trembling behind the curtain and there offered blood. Father, that, that level of reverence and awe, let it be ours. But also, O oh God, let us also savor and rejoice and delight in the fact that you are gracious and merciful to us. And you welcome us in as sons and daughters. Father, we thank you for our time this morning together. We thank you for our memory of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for six new members of the local body of Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. Father, we pray for your blessing on them. We pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them in their faith, in their walk with you. Father, we pray that we would be quick to continue to minister to them. And Father, we look forward as they will begin. And in some cases, Lord, continue to minister amongst us. Father, we seek your blessing for them. We give you thanks again, O oh God, for this time this morning. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.